Does God destroy the tyrant? Does God destroy whatever it is that, that's making your life difficult? Does God destroy those things? Not always. He's drowned some pharaohs. He's killed some Herods. But he's not always gotten rid of the tyrant. David was tormented by Saul for 15 years. That was after he was already anointed to be the king of Israel. 15 years he's done the work from Saul. And I don't know how God will deal with your adversity, but I do know how he'll deal with you. He'll give you a friend that's thinking closer than a brother, like he says in Bible. Just like God encountered Saul with the Jonathan, God gives you his son, God gives you the Holy Spirit, God gives you the church, God gives you a pastor who can care for you in your time of adversity. You know that, that scripture dedicates 66 chapters in the Bible to the life of David, the story of David's life, more than any other person in the Bible besides Jesus. He's mentioned 54 times in the New Testament alone. He would go on to establish the world's most famous city, Jerusalem, known as the city of David. Uh, the son of God would be known as the son of David. He was in David's line, but at the time of the writing of this scripture, he's in a cave. Stuck in a cave in the wilderness. When he was anointed to become Israel's next king, David probably could never have imagined himself here. Now, David didn't seek out to become the next king. It's not like he was you know, putting posters up everywhere and saying, vote for me for king. He was just tending the sheep, and the next thing you know, Samuel shows up out of the pasture and he's anointing him to be the next king of Israel. Not something that David wanted necessarily, not something that David expected, but once you're anointed the king, you expect that you're going to move in that direction, you're going to be brought into the palace, you're going to be trained in all the ways of a king, and eventually you're going to have a coronation day. David never expected to find himself in the cave of a dog. But between Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 18 and chapter 22, David's life goes from bad to worse until he finds himself hiding out in this cave. But it was there, in that dark, musty, lonely cave, that David found God. Not that he didn't already know God. David found something that he had been looking for. He realized in that cave that God was trying to, trying to draw him to himself. Well, God, God already owned David, so to speak. David was already uh, very much belonged to God and, and had given his life to serve God. But David had some things that he needed to learn. And it wasn't until he found himself in that cave in the building that he came to that realization that God was trying to draw him to himself. And that's exactly what God does in our lives as well. Do you feel empty? Do you feel lost? Do you feel like something's missing and you don't even know what it is? Maybe that you know Jesus Christ as your Savior. You know you're on your way to heaven. You know that your sins are forgiven. You, you still find yourself in that position. Hey, you're not alone. There are millions of people. Millions of Christians. Millions of people who have accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior and know for sure that they're going to heaven who find themselves in that position where they're just lost. They're just lonely. That's, that's where David was, right? Mm -hmm. David had put his faith and trust in, in God. But yet he finds himself in this lonely cave in his own. Let me tell you this morning, I've told probably hundreds of people, God does not toy with our lives. We are not some pawn in God's little game of life. Everything that God does in our life, he does for a reason. And that is one reason that God does that, and that is to draw us to himself. Everything that happens in our life happens because God is trying to draw us to himself. I'm going to take a few minutes this morning to talk to you about finding God in a dome. Finding God in a dome. Why does God draw, him, draw us to himself? What are the reasons? Let's look at those 
ask that we pray. Father, we love you. Give me thank you so much for how great you are to us. Again, I pray that you do the message this morning to speak to our hearts. Give us what we need to help us be what you want us to be. Thank you for what you do for us in Jesus' name. Amen. First thing I want you to see is this. God draws us to himself for salvation. Uh, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, then there's only one thing that God will do in your life, and that is to draw you to himself. Uh, you might say, well, God blessed me in this way or that way. And it's, it's very good for you to recognize the goodness of God in your life, but that's just the mercy of God in your life. Yeah. If, if Christ is not your Savior, then those things are only God's mercy, not God's blessing. And some people interpret that in the wrong way, and they say, well, look, I must be saved. God's blessing me with all of these things. No, it's not God's blessing. It's God's mercy. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, then the only thing that God is doing in your life is trying to draw you to himself for salvation. And you might ask, Pastor, why do you, why do you talk about salvation every week? I do that a lot. I, I talk about it often, and I'll tell you why. It's because there, there, there is no more important step in your life than coming to the realization that you are a sinner. Coming to the realization that you need forgiveness for that sin if you are going to make it to heaven. You need a Savior to right. rescue you from your condition. And in a crowd this size, there are bound to be some that have still not surrendered at the point of the cross. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, the Bible says. And neither am I. I don't want you to know for sure that you're on your way to heaven. Amen. I feel such a strong burden for those inside and outside of these walls to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. Jesus died on the cross for you and for me. There's, there's only an acceptance or a rejection of that sacrifice. There is no in you either accept his sacrifice on the cross, you accept his offer of forgiveness, you accept that payment for your sin, you repent of your sin, or there is no forgiveness. There is no in-between. I know people often talk about the fact that, well, one of these days when I die, I'm probably going to spend some time getting my sins burned off in hell. When all those sins are burned off, then eventually I'll be able to make my way to heaven. That's not in the Bible. That's a man-made doctrine to try to make people feel good about themselves, Try to make people feel like, well, I can just kind of get along with however I want to get along. Eventually, one of these days, I'll end up in heaven. There is more than just dying to end up in heaven. You need to know Jesus Christ as your Savior. There is no middle ground. Have you found yourself in a cave this morning? Are you desperately running for your life and you feel you don't even know what you're running from or where you're running to? Please hear me this morning. That emptiness is your need for a Savior. It's your need for Jesus Christ. The longer you live without him, the more desperate your situation is going to become. Salvation is not, hey, you have a, a wonderful life there, yuppie. You have a, a, a wonderful job and a, and a great career and a beautiful house and, and two cars in your driveway and 2.5 children. The only thing you're missing is Jesus Christ. No, Jesus Christ is not a cherry that you put on top of the ice cream. You either have Jesus Christ and he has you or you are nothing. You have nothing. You are empty. You're lost without Jesus Christ. Perhaps you found yourself in the cave of a dome this morning. Maybe that's only in a spiritual sense. You might be struggling physically, but you know that you're, you might not be struggling physically, but you know that you're missing something in your life. God is drawing you to himself for salvation. Normally the flight from Nassau to Miami took Walter Wyatt Jr. only about 65 minutes, but on December the 5th, 1986, attempted to make that flight after thieves had stolen all of the navigational equipment out of his airplane. He decided that he was going to make that trip because he had to get back with just a compass and a handheld radio. So he took off into the skies. There were storm clouds in the sky that were kind of darkening everything out. But 
his compass started to gyrate a little bit. He started to think that maybe he was going the wrong direction. So he turned around and he headed back in a different direction. And the more he flew, the, the more he realized that he was really lost. And so he dropped his plane down to the lowest of clouds, hoping to spot something, but very soon he knew that he, there was nothing that he could find. So he radioed an emergency transmission through that handheld radio to the Coast Guard, and, and, and they, uh, they came down to assist him, to guide him to a, just a, a landing strip only six miles away. And that the plane from the Coast Guard started to guide him, but it wasn't long. It was a, maybe a minute or two into that plane, and then he started to cough and sputter, and he realized he had no gas. He was over the over the water, so he realized the only thing he could do is actually land that plane in the water, which he did. He was able to make that landing, and the water without too much damage to himself. So the plane sunk immediately out from underneath him, and all he was left with was a leaky life vest. And of course, the Coast Guard saw his plane go down. They knew about where he was at, but it was dark. It was, it was dark. There was a storm in the area. They, they couldn't find him immediately. And the next thing you knew, there was no plane. There was no sound. There was nothing. Just him in the open water. And he's bobbing up and down in the water, and all of a sudden, he realized that he had a giant cut on his forehead from the crash. And the blood was draining down from his forehead into the water. And the next thing you know, he felt a bump on his leg. He knew exactly what it was. He knew there was sharks that were swimming around him. He kicked that shark, and the, and the shark kind of swam away. And all night, he bobbed in that water. He was able to last for 10 hours, bobbing up and down in that surf. And the next morning, he heard some planes that started circling overhead, and he saw the shark fins that were swimming around him. He knew that he did not have much time left. If either the sharks were going to get him or he was going to drown from exhaustion. And he was finally able to spot the, the planes, and, the, and he started waving that vest in the air, and the plane spotted him. And they radioed back, and they said, hey, get that Coast Guard cutter out here now. There are sharks that are circling this man. We need to get him out of the water. So that Coast Guard cutter made its way over there, and they dropped down one of those ladders, and, 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 and uh, Wyatt climbed up over the side of that thing, and he kneeled down to the deck and kissed the deck. He'd been saved. But I'll tell you this, he didn't need encouragement. He didn't need better methods. He didn't need some self-help techniques or anything like that. Nothing less than outside intervention was going to save him. Yeah. And that's exactly the case for every single person in this room this morning that knows not Jesus Christ as their Savior. No amount of self-help, no amount of doing better, no amount of good works can save you. Only outside intervention that came in the form of the Lamb of God being sacrificed on Calvary's cross was buried in a borrowed tomb and then rose from the dead can save us from our sin. Won't you cry out to him for salvation today? You find yourself in a cave, you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, the reason you're there is because Jesus Christ is trying to draw you to himself for salvation. But the second thing is God draws you to himself for sanctification. Turn over to Galatians chapter 4, if you will. Maybe you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. The truth is, we're never going to be perfect. We're never going to live sinless lives, and that doesn't mean that you can lose your salvation, because Christ already did that work on the cross for us. You cannot do enough to earn it. But once Christ's work is complete, you can't do enough to lose it either. Some people live like they're trying to, but maybe that's you this morning. Here's what Paul had to say about that, or, or maybe better yet, the question that Paul had for those who had gotten away from the Lord. We find in Galatians chapter 4, and verse number 8, Howbeit then, when you do not God, you did service unto them which by nature are no God. But now... After that ye have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage? Jesus Christ rescued you out of the bondage of Satan, 
out of the bonds of hell. You don't have to spend an eternity in hell because of what Jesus Christ did for you. You've accepted Jesus Christ as your sin. You've been freed from that prison of sin. Why would you ever want to go back into that bondage? Right. But so many Christians who accept Jesus Christ as their Savior go right back into that bondage again. They say, oh, this freedom stuff from Jesus Christ, I don't know if I like it. I don't know if I like it very much. I can't do the things that I used to be able to do. I can't go out and party the way that I used to party. I can't have all the, the friends that I used to have. I can't take part in the sin that I used to do. You know what? I don't know if I like this too much. Right? You know what? Let me go back and bondage to that sin. And they jump right back into it. And the next thing you know, Satan has them exactly where he wants them. And they're never useful in the cause of Jesus Christ. Look where God saved you from. You wonder why you're going through that trial? God's trying to draw you to himself for sanctification. He wants you to be holy. Not perfect, but holy. We ought to be trying to. We'll never be perfect, but we ought to be trying to be. The process of sanctification, I think, can be compared to a still iceberg, which is almost 90% underwater. But as that as the sun shines on the iceberg, the exposed part starts to melt, and that moves the lower parts upward. And that's exactly what sanctification is in our life. The more God exposes sin in our life, the more we realize, hey, that's something that I need to change. And, and that brings more things up to the depth that God says, hey, that's another thing that you need to change. And the, and the sun from the word of God starts to melt those things away. We start to realize, I need to make these changes. We make those changes and God exposes more stuff. That's what sanctification is all about. Yeah. It's, a, it's, it's about becoming a vessel that is clean that God can use. Right? None of us are going to use a dirty cup. Now, you certainly, if you if you go take a cup and fill it all full of mud and, and then dump the mud out and let it dry, well, that's nasty. Nobody's going to use that. Not even a little kid's going to use that, right? Well, you go clean it out, and the next thing you know, it's mostly clean. And maybe it's better than it used to be, but you see, look inside that cup, and you still say, that's a dirty cup. Right? Now, you go to a restaurant, and you find a little tiny spot on the top of your cup. Are you going to say, oh, that's fine. They can say, I need a different cup. This one's dirty, right? But there's only one spot on it. It doesn't look anything like that muddy cup used to look like. That's fine. It's not completely clean. Yeah. And we ought to be doing everything we can to be a completely clean vessel. Maybe you are better than you used to be. And I hope you are better than you used to be before you got saved. But the process of sanctification is going from that dirty vessel that has all kinds of things that need to be cleaned out to something that is perfectly clean that God can willingly use. That's what sanctification is. That's what holiness is. On a wall in his bedroom, Charles Spurgeon had a plaque with Isaiah 48, verse 10 on it. He says, I have chosen thee in the furnace of affliction. See, God's choice makes chosen men, choice men. We're chosen, not in the palace, but in the furnace. That's where God chooses us. And sometimes he has to put us through those things to help us realize, man, I need to go through that sanctification process. Man, God needs to do something in my life if he's going to use me. All throughout the Bible, we find that suffering is given to draw us closer to God. And I'm not saying that there's even anything massively wrong in your life when you go through a sickness or when you go through a financial difficulty or when you go through tough times in your life. But it can very well be that God just says, hey, you're here, and that's good. You've made a lot of progress in your life, but I want you to be here. You need to keep making that progress. So often we get comfortable with where we are. So often we get satisfied with our lives because, well, I'm not as bad as I used to be, or I'm not as bad as that person is, and we get comfortable. God does not want us to be comfortable, and that's why he allows us to go through that furnace of affliction. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 10 says, For the God of all grace, who has called us unto eternal glory by Christ Jesus, 
strengthened steadily. Look over to Jeremiah chapter 29. While you're turning there, we see in Job 23, verse 9, But he knoweth the way that I think. When he hath tried me, I shall come forth and go. That's why God puts us through that. He wants to purify us. He wants to make us what he wants to, to, us to be so that he can use us. We see in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. It's not that God's trying to get you. It's not that God doesn't, doesn't love you or trying to make your life miserable. He's trying to make you holy. God wants a vessel that is sanctified and meek for the master's use. God draws us to himself for salvation. He draws us to himself for sanctification. But number three, God draws us to himself for service. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 12. In Matthew chapter 25, we read of the parable of the that Jesus used to make a point about service. He chastised only the servant who took the, the talent that God gave him and hid it in the ground. He had one talent. He did nothing with it for the Lord. God didn't save us to sit around and do nothing for him. Luke chapter 17 says, So likewise, you, when you shall have done all those things which are commanded you, say, We are unprofitable servants. We have done that which is our duty to do. If all you do is what the duty of a Christian then you're an unprofitable servant, he says. Right? The Bible says in, Hebrew, in, in Romans chapter 12, it's our reasonable service to give our bodies as a living sacrifice to the Lord. Holy, acceptable unto God. It's a reasonable service. And sometimes God is allowing us to go through those things because he's trying to say, hey, I know you're going through the motions as a Christian. You're doing what a Christian ought to do. You're at church. On Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, you come out from meditation. You're involved in this ministry. You're involved in that ministry. You're doing this and you're doing that, but you're just going through the motions. Yeah. I want you to be holy. I want you to be sanctified. I want to be able to use you. Or perhaps you're saying, you know what? I'm a, I come to church on Sunday morning. Isn't that good enough? God's saying, hey, I've got to put you through the words of affliction a little bit now. You realize you need more than just Sunday morning church. I don't know. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm not trying to say, beware, because God's coming to get you. I'm not saying that at all, but sometimes when things are going rough in your life, you say, why is God doing this to me? God's not doing it to you. God's allowing it to happen to you because he's trying to draw you to himself. Yeah. And if, you, if you're friends with somebody, you want to talk to them. If you're friends with somebody, you really spend time with them. If you have a relationship with somebody, you're going to be where they are. And I'll tell you this, God is here on Sunday morning. God is here on Sunday night. God is here on Wednesday night. And somebody who is truly, genuinely trying to be as close to God as they possibly can be will try to be here where God is. And I'm not saying that you, you know, you should be having devotional time. You should be meeting with God in the morning. You should be spending time in prayer throughout the day. The Bible says pray without ceasing. But it's not the same thing as being where God is and where God's people are. And sometimes God allows you to go, those, go through those things because he's trying to draw you to himself for service. He's trying to say, you need to get involved. You need to jump in. You need to be a part of what I'm doing. But Hebrews chapter 12, verse number 5 says this, And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children, my son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourges every son whom he receives. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? Verse 11. Now, 
go chasing for the present seems to be going for freedom. Nevertheless, afterward, it yielded the peaceable fruit of righteousness and redemption for exercise. He quite often got into the chastening his children to get them moving to him. And there's lots to do for the cause of Jesus Christ. Those who are not at work in the Lord's work are unprofitable servants. God doesn't hate you. God doesn't despise you by any means, but they'll use those unpleasant cases to get the business done. Story is told about a famous violinist that performed in a, in a very well-known concert hall. And as he stood before the packed auditorium that night and played his violin, he mesmerized the audience with how, with how good he was with that bow and that violin. And after he lifted the string, lifted the bow off the string on that final note, the crowd just poured out with thunderous applause. And he looked at the crowd for a moment and he walked off the stage, only to return a moment later when the crowd was still cheering and they wanted an encore. And so he, and he, he, he played an encore performance that was even more beautiful than those numbers that he had played before that. And when that was over, the crowd thundered their applause again. He looked at the audience and he left the stage for a second time, but the crowd continued to cheer and he knew that they wanted him to come back out for another encore, and so he did. He came out again and he played another song that was just as beautiful, if not more beautiful, than the second time, than the first encore that he had played. And again, the crowd was just mesmerized until that last note, and then they thundered in applause again. And he looked, and, and as he saw, uh, the audience, he walked off the stage where they continued to cheer, so he walked out for a third time and played encore. He played that third encore number, and they thundered the same applause as they had before, but this time he stayed outside and didn't come back in for another encore. And the, 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 of course, the press and, and everybody else was there. This is a very famous violinist. He had his own dressing room, and, and the press was waiting to catch a word from him. And so just after the performance, he came out of that small room and one of, the, one of the reporters asked him a question. He said, sir, why did you give so many encore performances? You could have stopped after the main performance and everybody would have been mesmerized. Everybody would have been thrilled with that. But you came back again and again and again. Why did you come back for so many encores? The violinist stopped there and he said, for the very first time in my career, my master, the one who taught me how to play the violin, was in the crowd. And after each one of those first few encores, the crowd was thundering their applause, but he stayed in the seat. He said, I came back a third time, and after that third time I played, I looked out into the audience, and even my master was standing up applauding. He said, it was at that point that I was satisfied that I had done a good job. Who are you living to please? Is your life focused on, on receiving the praises of everybody who sees what you're doing for Jesus Christ, striving to please men, or are you striving to please your master? Are you striving to please Jesus Christ? Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2 says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We have to keep our focus on Jesus Christ. When he satisfied that we've done a good job, then we can be satisfied. We can hear him say, Well done, my good faithful servant. That's what we ought to be doing. Lastly, quickly, God draws us to Himself for salvation, for sanctification, for service, and lastly, for strength. Go over to Psalm 57. See, David found himself in a cave of a door, a place where he had never expected to find himself in the mountain. But it was good for David. Because it was in that cave that David found strength in the presence of the Lord. The amazing thing about that is that it was in that cave that David wrote. 
David finding refuge and security and deliverance and mercy. And we don't have time to read the entire passage, but Psalm 57, verse number 7, David says this, My heart is fixed, O God, my heart is fixed. I will sing and give praise. Remember where he is. Awake up, my glory. Awake, sultry and harp, and I myself will wake early. I will praise thee, O Lord, among the people. I will sing unto thee among the nations. For thy mercy is great unto the heavens, and thy truth unto the clouds. Be thou exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let thy glory be above all the earth. Turn over to Psalm 142. Again, I don't have time to read the entire passage. It might do your soul some good to read through that passage, but you have to remember, David is singing in this cave. David's in a place that he didn't want to be, didn't expect to be, never thought he would find himself. If you can find yourself in the same position, you too can sing in the cave. Psalm 142, verse 1, I cried unto the Lord with my voice. With my voice unto the Lord did I make my supplication. I poured out my complaint before him. I showed before him my trouble. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, then thou knewest my path. In the way wherein I walk, have they privily laid a snare for me? I looked on my right hand to be held, but there was no man that would know me. Refuge failed me. No man cared for my soul. I cried unto thee, O Lord. I said, Thou art my refuge and my portion in the land of glory. See, God calls us to himself for strength. Sometimes we find ourselves in a position we never hoped or never expected to find ourselves in, but a lot of times God does that because we need to realize who he is. We need to realize what he is to us. He is our refuge. He is our strength. He is our fortress. He is to survive your desert and find your hill. Who knows? Best chapter of your life very well might be greater than the book. I'm glad we Some of the best chapters that he ever wrote in the book of Psalms are written in that book. You can sing songs in the desert. Let God show himself strong even in your cave. Man, with this. No shoemaker's fall is on prominent display in the French Academy of Science. That hall fell off of a shoemaker's table one day, and his young nine-year-old boy was picking something up underneath that table, and as that hall fell, he turned around and looked, and that hall hit him right in the eye. He lost his sight in that eye. And because of the timing and the time period that that happened in, and, and there was not a lot of good medicine and all of that kind of stuff, that child actually
what's necessary to support your death in our spiritual life in the moment. We're going to have an invitation. I want to give you an opportunity to step out of your seat, come forward, and let somebody take a Bible and show you how you feel for sure that you're going to have to do You'll never make any progress in your spiritual life, not one step in your spiritual life, until you become committed to Jesus Christ as your Lord. You can try all you want to, you can read the Bible, you can try to pray, but it's just going to be a, a, an effort that's completely wasted because until you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you cannot take a step in the Christian life. You can't take a step in the Christian life until you're a Christian. So perhaps you find yourself in that position this morning that God's trying to draw you to Himself for salvation. Could it be that you're saved? You've gotten away from God? Even if only a little bit, maybe God's drawing you to himself for sanctification. You know, God cannot use you very fast. Might be that God's drawing you to himself to get you busy in his service. You know that sanctification and service usually go hand in hand. The more you move toward holiness, the more you want to move in working for the Lord. The more God deals with your life, the more you get clean and closer you get to him, the more you want to serve him, the more you want to minister him, the more you want to live for him. They go hand in hand. I know this. God's drawing you to himself as you get his strength to keep on going until you get to himself. Caleb and Noah might seem like a tough place. But for most of us, that's exactly where God needs us to be. In order for us to be in a position where we realize that the only place we can turn is to him. Finding God in the dark. Are you there? Be glad. Be glad. Because that's when God is trying to draw you to himself. Let's pray. Father, we love you again and thank you for the opportunity you give us to be here in your house this morning. I do pray, as I pray often, if there's anybody in this room that does not know for sure that they're on their way to heaven, they have accepted as their Savior today. That as you give them the courage to step out, come forward and let somebody take a ride and show them how they can be saved. What a tremendous day that was for me when I came to know you as my Savior. I know the joy that so many others have experienced in having their burdens lifted at Calvary. And I pray that if there is somebody in here that's still carrying that burden of sin around us, they let that go this Come and know you as your Savior. Oh God, this room is filled with many, many Christians. Some who have gotten away from you. Some who aren't doing what you've called them to do. Some who have taken the talents that you've given them and buried them in the ground so they don't move them. God, I pray that you help us to be drawn to you for sanctification. I pray that you help us to be drawn to you for service so that we can continue on for you until you come back. There is no doubt the time is short. There's no doubt that even if we live a, a normal life on the timeline of eternity, the amount of time, the amount of years that we have to live for you and to serve you, it's no for eternity. It's so short. I pray that you have to use every minute. Thank you for what you do for us in Jesus Christ. And have enjoyed Santa's receipt.